0: You are listening to The Partner Podcast, relevant information to enhance the careers and improve the lives of partner-level attorneys. Produced by The Attorney Search Group, we grow law firms and accelerate attorney careers. Visit us on the web at attorneysearchgroup.com.
1: Hi, this is Scott Love, and thanks for joining me on The Partner Podcast. Each day, you are paid to make correct decisions on behalf of your clients. You're certainly expected to make correct decisions on behalf of your firm, and especially for yourself. And in today's podcast, I interview a professional expert on making decisions, published author Greg Dinkin. Greg is an author of four books, one of which is The Poker MBA, a consultant on the area of decision-making, and a professional keynote speaker. He shows businesses and individuals how to make winning decisions. And on today's podcast, we glean insights from his expertise that hopefully can help you improve in your business of serving your clients. I've got with me on the show today a close friend, Greg Dinkin. I've known Greg for years. He is a decisions coach. He's the author of four books, including The Poker MBA and The Leading Man, and a professional keynote speaker. And today, we're going to be talking about effective decision-making. Greg, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, Scott. So give me a a 30-second overview of your expertise and specific to poker and the poker MBA. I know you wrote that book years ago, and it's a great book. Tell me about your journey to write that book and, and a little bit about what the book is about.
0: I got an MBA, and I was working at Pricewaterhouse, and I realized that I learned more about business from playing poker than I did from going to business school. So that was the thesis behind the book. I still feel that way 20 years later, that yes, I learned certain things in business school about reading a financial statement, but ultimately, the core of understanding people, reading people, decision-making, negotiation... I learned much more from playing poker professionally.
1: Well, this is interesting, and let me kind of give you some pushback on that. You're telling me that grinding it out, folding 95% of the time, sitting in card rooms, eating bad food, uh, all those things contributed to your success and your knowledge about business. What are you talking about? What does that mean exactly?
0: Well, I love that you you said eating bad food because <laughs> because this could take us to a whole other conversation. But in 2006. I started getting healthier. I hired a holistic health coach from the Institute for Integrative Nutrition and I also became a holistic health coach. And then my biggest win as a poker player, which was in the 2006 World Series of Poker where I won $102,000, was when I started eating better. And when my Mm -hmm. opponents were out having a cigarette and a hot dog, I was by the pool doing breathing exercise and yoga and eating healthy food. So yes, I certainly, the, the mind element of how to think how to read people, how to know when someone's bluffing is important. And then a whole other element, because poker players are really mental athletes now. So the ability to, and mindfulness is big in law firms, right? So remaining cool, look, poker is all about adversity. Bad things are happening to you, right? You're tired, you're losing, you've got aces and your opponent draws out on you. And, And after all that happens, can you still play your A game? So yeah, absolutely. So poker continues to teach me lessons. But yes, absolutely. More from grinding it out in poker than going to business school. And I've done both.
1: You know, this is interesting because we share this as a common hobby. And I don't play at the level that you do, I'm sure. I get maybe one night a week and I don't do cash games. I just do tournaments because it mitigates the risk. And the advantage if you're a good player is pretty high. But spending time with real hardcore professionals that are truly professionals in every sense of the word in games such as this. I remember spending time with one of them and I was asking him about the goals that he sets. I said, what are the goals that you set when you sit down? What goes on in your mind? And he says, really, I only focus on two things. One of them is making correct decisions and the other one is learning something because I have no control over the flow of the cards, but I have control over my resolve, over how I respond to adversity. So, tell me about this in terms of your knowledge of poker and your expertise in coaching professionals and making critical decisions. What do you think makes a good decision maker? What can we learn from poker that can help listeners of the podcast to improve in their decision making skills?
0: The most important element is that we cannot separate the decision maker from the decision. Mm. And this comes back to my holistic training is that you have to be a calm human being to make good decisions because the hard decisions in life come to us when we're triggered, when we're tired, right? When you, it's, it's not a hard decision to decide, should I drive home? It's a hard decision to decide if I should drive home. Once you've had three or four drinks, it's, Hey, I've lost a thousand dollars in this poker game. Do I go get more money? So really it's to deal with adversity, to deal with a difficult client, To deal with a difficult judge, it's okay. Am I centered enough to take this adversity to deal with these bad beats, this bad luck, which is inevitable, and still continue to make good decisions? I liken it to the company Christmas party. Everybody shows up at seven o'clock with their tie tied in a good mood, and they say (laughs) the right things. And by eleven, the wheels start coming off, right? Right. And, And so it's it's really that ability to no matter what happens. Because look, they, bad things happen. It's how can you continue to make great decisions in the face of being tired, in the face of being triggered when you're losing, when things are going against you?
1: Well, let's look down that path a little bit. And from your expertise, I know that you spent time in law firm offices teaching people to use poker as a vehicle to understand decision making. And you have firsthand experience in some reputable firms in doing that. And looking at the world of partners, the adversity they go through, much of it is beyond their control, such as a client merging. They've lost their best client. 50% of their revenue is gone overnight. Or the firm that they're with merges. And now three years later, they're conflicted. What was a vibrant practice has diminished over something they had nothing to do with. Or there's a change in leadership or there are de- partners. The departures of partners where a lot of their referral sources have left. There are so many variables beyond their control that affect their ability to grow their practice. So, and you're telling me that the step that they should take first is to improve their own mental health, to improve their own physical health. What are some action steps an attorney can take to get to that space, to where they have the physical and the emotional reserve
0: from which to draw to
1: overcome adversity?
0: I'm afraid this is going to be a very boring answer. (laughs) And it's just the basics, right? Sleep hydration, nutrition, exercise. And I'll I'll give you a more salient example. So people who meet me will often say, hey, are you a yoga teacher? You seem very zen. And if they only knew me as a kid as the most hot-tempered, if I lost a soccer game or I was playing basketball and the ref made a bad call, I would throw a temper tantrum. So I had to develop this, not because it's natural for me, but because if i didn't do that i would go broke playing poker right so, right so fundamentally you know it's amazing i'll play poker for people for 12 hours and they won't drink any water well your brain function is not going to be as high when you're dehydrated so a lot of the basics are just obviously and this is not so easy right when you're locked in a deal when you're when you're an m&a lawyer and you've been up for 15 hours it's not so easy right but the fundamentals of obviously good sleep, good nutrition. But I'll give you a more salient example. So somebody sends me an email that pisses me off, right? Right. And I'm I'm ready to go. Like I'm not zen, so I just let them have it. Like I take it out on my keyboard and I tell them off and I say everything I want to say, and then I hit send. Except here's the trick: I send it to myself, <laughs> and I send it to myself. I give it hopefully overnight if I can. And then I look at it the next day. So and then I look at it the next day and, and hopefully I have some perspective. Or when I was running my literary agency, I would send it to my partner and let him look at it. That's always a good technique, too. So the idea is that we're, we're human. I'm not asking you to be to be Zen and never get upset. We're going to get upset. It's when those things happen. How do you react? And can you react in such a way that's not bad for your bankroll or business? So my sending that email to myself is not hurting my business.
1: That's a great tip. Yeah. It gives people a chance to step back. And and I found that the more I mature, the less I have to have regret over bad communication choices to other people. <laughs> and, and I'm, you know, I think it's it's something that you get with maturity. But I think yeah. that's a great tip, even if there's somebody that might not yet be a partner that's listening, write the email to themselves or send it to a friend and get that feedback.
0: Oh, I'll go ahead. I was going to say my brother and I have this running joke. He's very busy. He's got kids. He works hard and, and he'll laugh. But yeah, you know, I just did a 90 minute hot yoga class and kick back with a novel, sort of making fun of my lifestyle. So, so I will say to to the attorneys out there, if you can just get outside and take a five minute walk around the block, if, if you can Maybe you can't take a lunch break and you eat at your desk, but take five minutes and take a walk. Maybe you can't get to the gym for an hour and a half. Get there for 15 minutes. You know, do a gentleman's workout. Take, take some of your briefs into the sauna and read them while you're getting a sweat. I think there are little things you can do. It's not all or nothing. It's not, you know, quit your practice and train for a triathlon. It's just do what you can to to keep yourself in the right frame of mind.
1: Do you think that having good habits is something that can help a lawyer get in better emotional shape? And I don't mean good eating habits or workout or diet or rest. I'm talking about other success habits, such as writing goals, keeping a journal, doing a little bit every day, things like that. What
0: what do you think about that, Greg? I know a a real successful guy, and he paints every morning, and it really seems to help his business. Hmm. So... Why don't you elaborate on that for us, Scott? Oh yeah, yeah. You're, you're talking about me. I'm like, I do that too. Yeah, I think well, you were, I think you were leading the witness a little bit there. So why, why don't you I didn't? Well, elaborate. I'm like, well, I want to know who
1: this person is so I can talk right. to him. But, but right. no, you're right. I remember uh, several years ago getting back into art, into watercolor art. And if anybody's listening, my watercolor page is Watercolor Addicts. It's on Instagram. And sometimes I'll sell my work, but many times I'll ask people to make a donation to a charity or whatever. I mean, that's, that's not the focus. Sometimes people will say, we want you to, I want you to do a custom piece for me. I want to commission you. And I just lose interest in that because that's not the whole point for me. The point for me is I want to be creative because when I'm creative, when I'm exercising and massaging that part of my brain, I've got a head start on solving problems for the day. I have this built this reserve of energy from which I can draw later on when I get into a tough spot. And I find that I can find solutions a lot easier to complex challenges. When I've done creative work in the morning, I think some people probably even like yourself, kind of giving it back to you, Greg, being a successful author, you've probably written a lot and you've developed a discipline, a certain habit of doing that every day. And I'm assuming that that ritual gives you energy to withstand adversity in your life. Is that an accurate assumption?
0: Well, y- yes and no. On on the writing front, I tend to be very momentum driven. So you hear about those people that you know they write an hour a day every day. That's not me. But but to make it more germane to the attorneys out there, I understand that you know, a buddy mine's a partner at a law firm and says the only thing he can control is when he gets into the office. Once hmm. he's into the office, a million things are going to come at him, and he can't control that. And he really can't control when he leaves. So I would say with, with that in mind, look, let's be realistic here. Like you're going to be reactive, you're going to be hit with things. You can't control so I'd say yes. More really important is what can you control? What you can control is I'm gonna do 20 push-ups in the morning and take a cold shower. Or I'm gonna at least, you know, take a five minute lap around the park where I work. So I think it's even more important. To to yeah, to make these rituals part of what you do. And once they're habits, they just get done. It becomes like brushing your teeth. And yeah, whatever that is, if it's writing in a journal in the morning, if it's doing push us, if it's a cold shower. But I think these rituals become that much more important when you're in a stress-filled environment where you don't always have control over your schedule.
1: So if you could take this and synthesize it into three or four suggestions for the partner listening right now, those areas over which this partner has control. One of them is the food choices, right? Sure. Yep. They've got control over what they put in their mouths and uh, cutting back on the booze too. Uh, the food choices, what they, the inputs in terms of help, they have control over their sleep. Most of the time, I'd, I'd assume they can control what time they go to bed, go to bed earlier. And I know for many people listening, they just might be in a cycle where they just, they're working insane hours. But if they can't take A day or two off. Number three, they could take breaks. I liked what you mentioned about taking a short break. And I believe that when you're in the healing space, that's when you build strength. When you lift or train with your trainer, you don't train the same muscle two days in a row. You want to take a break because that's when you build strength. But what are some other things that you think attorneys have control over that can give them energy to build that reserve from which they can during times of adversity?
0: A real important principle that is applicable here is the notion of crowding out and focusing on what you're adding as opposed to what you're eliminating. Because, so in other words, if you fill your plate with some greens or some broccoli, then there's less room. There's going to be less room in your stomach for dessert or for the unhealthy things. So I would, I would just, the main point I would make is focus on what you're going to do as opposed to what you're going to eliminate. So for example, rather than saying, I'm not going to waste so much time on fantasy football or I'm not going to watch TV, just say, I will take things where you can check a box and say, okay, I will read one bedtime story to my kid before they go to sleep. I will get to the sauna at least twice a week. I will make sure that if nothing else, I have a healthy smoothie to eat. Look, let's be realistic. At 10 at night, you're working on a deal. They're ordering Chinese. Fine, get the Chinese. But as long as you've had your smoothie with some healthy things already, you're going to get the good things. So my, my main thing is focus on adding and getting the good stuff as opposed to what you have to eliminate. Because if you get the good stuff, the stuff you have to eliminate will be crowded out quite a bit.
1: I like what you mentioned on the plate. When you go get your lunch at the buffet, start with
0: the salad. Fill up most of the space with salad. Yeah, exactly. And because you're not saying I can't have dessert. You're just saying I'm going to make sure I get my good stuff. And then a lot of the times the dessert will just be crowded out. And, and that's, and that's a little bit like the, the Stephen Covey principle of, you know, the urgent, important. I'm, I'm sure a lot of, a lot of people have seen this matrix where things that are urgent, but not important, like picking up the right. phone or reading the phone, but the, the non urgent, and this maybe ties into business development for, for attorneys. What's non urgent, but important. Okay. So, the, obviously the client that's calling you and nagging you in the middle of a deal, that's both urgent and important. But the, the base things that won't get done because they're not urgent, no one's pressing you, the main thing there is you have to schedule them and you have to ritualize them. So it may just be, okay, you know, Thursday is gonna be, you know, from noon to one, I'm making prospecting calls. Right. Or I'm gonna do at least two breakfasts a month with potential clients. The key to getting those things in that aren't urgent, because again, as an attorney, there's a lot that is urgent. There's deals, there's deadlines. You got to take what's not urgent and schedule it and ritualize it. That's
1: great. They've got a lot coming at them all at the same time. So their focus tends to be towards that flame that's chasing their feet rather than the vision of the mountains of where they want to go, which is obscured by that wall of smoke. So I think you're absolutely right by developing rituals and habits that are automatic. They just automatically default to eating well, going to the gym, spending time with family. Do you think it's a good idea if someone starts going through and making changes that he or she will write these down on a monthly basis, such as monthly goals? Like these are the monthly commitments I'm making to myself today. What what do you think about that?
0: Well, look, what gets measured gets done. So absolutely, in the same regard, what we're constantly fighting, all of us, is autopilot. Is our just is our habits, is our default. So yeah, the minute it gets written down, and ideally the more people who see it. So make this goal public, share it with your group, share it with your family, and then measure it and then create accountability. Absolutely. So if rather than saying I'm gonna work on business development in 2019 or I'm gonna spend more time with my kids in 2019, the problem with that is it's way too vague. So if you say, all right, in 2019, and this this comes back to the element of what you can control. You can't necessarily control outcomes. You right. can't necessarily control uh, a big theme we say in poker all the time is decisions, not outcomes. Well, right. I lost. The, I lost the hand. Well, okay. Let me think about how I played the hand. I mean, because you can't control. Well, you know, a deuce of spades came on the river, and I lost. I can't control that. I think back to how I played the hand. So. Really, it's about being specific and saying, okay, what can I control? If it's business development, I can do two breakfasts a month. I can reach out to 10 new people. And every Thursday from three to four, I'm going to spend an hour on LinkedIn or I'm going to, I'm going to, whatever it is and make it tangible and something you can measure.
1: I think that's great. I think then people will start to develop those habits over time and have to be less intentionally focused on them. They become automatic.
0: Exactly. Yes.
1: So let me kind of move into how to make a good decision and mitigate the risk. So let's say we built up our reserves. We're making good habits. We have the ability to withstand more adversity. We've got our mental focus where we are dispassionate about results and focused on the inputs, knowing that results will improve over time. But I have to make a critical decision. I have to decide, and let's look at some examples. I need to leave my firm, or I have a big matter that's been referred to me that will not have any connection to the existing work that I'm doing and may take me away from a known profitable client focus area. So I have to make a decision in terms of my own personal strategy about my legal practice. Other things like that, major impacting life-changing decisions where if I go behind door number two and I should have gone behind door number one, I'm going to be a mess. I'm going to be a mess and I'm going to regret that decision. How would you recommend a partner listening to this podcast today can take action steps to make better decisions? What would you recommend to them in that space?
0: Great question. The number one thing is I think we have to understand the concept of expected value. And by expected value, I mean really taking, looking at all potential outcomes and assigning a probability to those. This is where the poker mind really comes in. So it's funny, I was working with a, a group of new hires at a law firm recently. And I don't know, let, let's say their starting salary is 150 or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And I say, you get recruited to go work for a startup and there's potential for a huge payout, right? I and mean, this could be retirement type money. Do you take the job? Well, and look, this is, I think this is what everybody struggles with but it, it's funny, I think there's a kind of a running joke that doctors tend to be the worst poker players. <laughs> and I think the reason why is doctors and scientists really struggle with imperfect information because they're, they're trying to find a formula for this and there's not a formula. But you, so, but you have to go through the process and say, okay, yeah, there's a scenario, let's walk through the potential scenarios here. There's a True. scenario where if I take this job, the company's gonna go public, and I make 5 million. There's also a scenario where they're at least giving me a base of 50. And so there's a scenario where I'm just going to make my base of 50, and then there's some other scenario where they do okay and end up making 100. Well, you now have to actually go through the probability and you go, "Well, how do you know?" You that's a sit you don't. You, mm. you don't know the probabilities. I mean, and and your numbers are only as good as your assumptions, and this is where you have like when phil ivy you know bets moves all in against me on the river is he bluffing i don't know but i have to then say okay he's either on a complete bluff he either has a flush or he either flopped a set and i'm going to assign a probability to those things so you start with the numbers right yeah five there's there's a i think a 5% chance that this thing could go public or maybe there's a 1% chance and then you go through and uh, through a, a sign of probability. So I do think there has to be a sound understanding of, of probability and expected value. Uh, I don't know if I properly explained that here.
1: So let's just kind of translate that into a decision that a partner has to make about a career move. Should I stay sure. with my current firm where I'm a known entity, but I believe that my star is starting to uh, shine a little bit darker? It's not as bright. I'm in the shadow of other people. Or here's another option that I have where it's an unknown firm, but it seems to have a good organizational development component to it. They put some thought into creating a partnership that's healthy, where I don't feel there's any risk with the firm itself. And I feel that I could be a key player in that firm. I can be more significant than I am with my current firm, yet my current firm is stable and I'm a known quantity. But I just don't think I'm gonna be as big a deal here in the next three years. So I, I'm looking at that other option. Kind of kind of those, let's just say a partner is looking at those two options. How would they go through some of the things that you mentioned to make the best decision for them?
0: It's interesting, Scott, because I've had, in the last couple of months, several clients have been in this situation where they, they're being recruited to go somewhere. And they're also around 50. So I'm managing the, let's make the best business decision Right. Tied, tied in with a midlife crisis.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and less time to recover from a bad decision. The older people get.
0: Well, yeah. And so and just to you know, give the audience a little bit about what I do, I call myself a decisions coach and I often straddle the line of strategists and therapists. And mm-hmm. so to understand this decision, I, again, we start with the numbers because the numbers are the easiest. Right. Let me make an approximation of what I think my income is going to be you know, over the next three years, five years, 20 years, and analyze those for both firms, right? And then a lot of it is self-knowledge. You know, I have a client now who's being recruited and the company that's recruiting him, from an outsider's perspective, it just makes sense on so many levels for him to move. Like anyone looking at this objectively would say, take the other job. But in doing his own self-analysis, he's such a creature of habit. Now, And there's fear of the unknown. And there's no right answer for any individual. But in that situation, is his fear of the unknown really preventing him from what's the better opportunity? Or is his fear of the unknown saying, I'm willing to pass up upside. I'm willing to pass up a better opportunity because I so so value stability. So it's hard to make these great decisions without the self-knowledge of, hey, what truly makes me tick? And then you have to to stop and ask yourself, is this fear of the unknown? Is it something that, hey, it's normal, I just gotta understand it and deal with it and and take what really is the better offer? Or is my gut really telling me something that maybe I should stay? And maybe the familiarity of of having my peers is something I've overlooked.
1: It's interesting when I talk to people about making a move, because I have an interest. If a partner goes to another firm, I get a placement fee, but I found that the best way to help a partner make that decision is to totally detach from that outcome where I don't even look at that, where I make money when it's a good placement. And if it's not a good placement, if that partner never should have gone to that firm, then I don't want them to go to that firm because I know it's gonna happen six to nine months later and that's gonna be awful. And so I've actually found that I will coach people to stay with the firm. Here I am calling to recruit them, but after I hear their story, and what they want, I say, you shouldn't leave. I mean, they're, they're kind of surprised to hear someone like me tell them that because if they move and they shouldn't move, then it's going to be miserable for everybody, even myself, because I'm connected to both the client and the candidate. So I found by coaching them and telling them, don't feel any pressure from me, that after you look at something and you decide you want to stay, that it's a better option than you need to do that. And the one thing I've heard people say, and I want to share this with you and see what you think, I've heard them say this, the devil that I know is better than the devil that I don't know. Meaning that the place that I'm at, I'm just going to go ahead and settle because I think it's more secure than things that I don't know. Personally, I challenge that because sometimes the situation that they're in might not be the best situation, even though it's known and it's comfortable but it might not necessarily be the safest nor the most secure route for them achieving their goals. What do you think about that phrase? The devil that I know is better than one that I don't know. What do you think about that?
0: I I think it's very common. And really, you and I pretty much do the same thing. It's by asking questions, you get people to to really self-reflect. I mean, that's the, the benefit of coaching because by asking the question of, well, hey, if I go to this other firm, I'm worried. Say, well, what are you worried about? And really honor those feelings, and by honoring those feelings and continuing to ask questions to get them to reflect, they'll find out. You know, it's like, well, I'm I'm afraid they're going to go out of business. And you stop and say, well, they've been around for 90 years, and they're well capitalized, uh, you know, and they're giving you a three year guarantee. You know, so and and th- and so just by articulating that, you realize that that fear is probably unfounded. Mm-hmm. So I just think it's the process of continuing to ask questions continuing to self-reflect you know one of the guys I'm coaching now he's very much a creature of habit and he doesn't want to leave but what he's not seeing is his current situation that's not so stable either because right. his, his boss may retire and there's other elements there so I think it's just challenging these assumptions and, and another key point is that um, I used to sell windows and siding so I was oh, tin, really? <laughs> yeah I was a tin I was a tin man. And you know, one thing we always said is that people decide emotionally and rationalize logically. So you, know, you think when people buy a car, that they're going to be reading consumer reports and looking at safety features and gas mileage. They only do that after they've decided. Because they, I just, hey, I want a Mini Cooper, they look cool. And then they go back and say, well, it did well in the safety rating. So understanding that the decision is often being made emotionally because then people go, well, yeah, I, you know, this, this bay window, it's going to save, it's going to be save me on energy. No, it's not. I mean, if you really run the numbers, <laughs> that bay window is. I just want it. I mean, I, I want it. My house is going to look better. The neighbors are going to see how well I'm doing. That's probably the real reason that's driving it. And then you start to rationalize, well, it's going to help resale value. Well, it's going to help, you know, uh, my energy costs, probably not enough to justify the expense. So I just think in these situations, yeah, look at your gut. Hey, my emotional reaction is I don't want to leave. And then just take it through a more logical process and say, okay, but wait a second. I don't want to leave because I like routine. But who's to say my routine at my current firm is going to really be the same in a year? Yes, I fear change. Yes, I fear things being different. But uh, by staying in one place, that might be the greatest risk of all.
1: So tell me then, what are you doing With your decisions coaching, how would you, if someone calls you and they want you to help coach them through a major decision, tell me about the work that you do and how can they find you? And then then also, I want to hear about some of the work that you've done within law firms for some of the presentations you've done.
0: Yeah, so people, you know, um, I'm just gregdinkin.com, D I N K I N, and people will come to me and say, "I, I got recruited, I'm looking at this other offer. And, you know, like a McKinsey consultant, I will very practically walk them through the, okay, so one of the things we need to do is determine your market value. So, you know, can you start finding out, can you get out there and find out what other offers are there? And then and then back to the poker element is, you have to walk in the other person's shoes. So, that, so just real brass tacks negotiation, let's think about if you're going to make a hard stand with your boss, how's that gonna go? Tell me about this person, what's their character? How are they going to react? And then we'll really get in the nitty gritty of, all right, let's actually draft a note to your boss or your partner, and I will work them through that. All the while, and often I'll refer them to my last book called The Leading Man and say, you got to really know who you are and start asking the bigger questions of, you know, what, what really excites you? What are you interested in terms of your legacy? These kinds of more existential questions. So all the while, and one of the reasons I call myself a decisions coach is particularly for men, using the term life coach seems too touchy-feely sometimes. Right. Sure. So many times, let's just deal with a problem. Hey, someone made an offer to buy my business, or I'm being recruited, or my deal's up. All right, let's start there. And then if they're willing, we can kind of work back to, well, the deeper stuff of why do I have this fear of conflict, or what's really getting at this? Fear of change and those kind of elements.
1: Well, Greg, this sounds great. You've got some great ideas that I know can help the law firms. But one thing before we go, tell me about some of the things that you've done for the law firms inside them. Like I think you mentioned you did a, a, a gamification of decision making through uh, teaching poker skills at associate retreats or things like that. What are the, some some of the things you've done with them? Yeah, firms?
0: so, so I've, I've worked with law firms where I've done some events where I will teach poker mm-hmm. and so that's more of a team-building event where I teach poker, people learn something fun, we will often play, I'll point out tells and tendencies, and then often combine that with a workshop that gets more into decision-making, negotiation, deal-making, that kind of thing. And then currently, I'm a contractor for a company called Ability, which is A-B-I-L-I-T-I-E, which teaches finance through a simulation, through a game. So what happens is a lot of new hires at law firms, they may have been English majors or poli-sci majors and they're brand new. And now they're being asked to work with an M and a partner and the M and a partner is talking about valuation about uh, time value of money. And the lawyers don't understand this. So the new lawyers don't. So right. the company I work for is actually building its practice with law firms. I did two events in the fall um, and it's great. It's rather than lecturing for eight hours on finance You do a little introduction, you get them into the game, they're playing, they're making decisions, and then doing mini lessons on the basics of valuation and finance.
1: That's great. Well, Greg, this is great. You've got some great ideas that I believe could help partners in their major decisions. If anybody wants to reach out to Greg, his website again is gregdinkin.com and we'll put that in the show notes also. And Greg, thanks again. I really appreciate your time on being a guest on the podcast today.
0: Thank you, Scott.
1: Thanks for joining me. And if you have ideas or recommendations for this podcast, please email me at scott at attorneysearchgroup.com. For more information about the Attorney Search Group and the services I offer as a sports agent for partners who want to find a better platform, visit me on the web at attorneysearchgroup.com.